0: Welcome SGO listeners. This is our next installment of Keeping Up with the Chemos. While we call it that, it is actually a podcast looking at any and all new agents in the gynecologic oncology space available for us to administer for our patients. I am Tracy Lynn Hall. I'm a gynecologic oncologist at Baylor College of Medicine, and I am joined by some wonderful guests tonight.
1: I'm Jennifer McDonald. I am a Gynecologic oncology pharmacist at the Medical University of South Carolina, and I will be co moderating today's session with Tracy Lynn Hall.
2: I'm David Gershenson, a gynecologic oncologist at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston.
3: I'm Rebecca Porter, I'm a GYN medical oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer
0: Institute in Boston. And I'm Christina Davis, I'm an oncology clinical pharmacist at the University of Colorado. Thank you so much for each of you joining us today. We are going to be discussing trametinib. So, Dr. Gershenson, why don't you get us started in telling us who it is that would be a candidate for use of trametinib?
2: Well, thank you. It's uh, very nice uh, to participate in this uh, SGO podcast. So, you know, trametinib is a selective reversible allosteric inhibitor of MEK one and MEK two, and it's been one of the MEK inhibitors that has been studied by the GOG or NRG oncology. The first. MEK inhibitor that was studied was selumetinib in a phase 2 trial that demonstrated a 15% response rate, and then GOG-281 studied in a phase 2-3 trial, trametinib. There also was the trial, uh, the MILO trial, that uh, studied uh, benimetinib. So I think there's a general consensus that trametinib is used primarily for patients with low-grade serious ovarian cancer who have recurrent disease. It has not really been studied that much at all in the upfront setting or in the neoadjuvant setting. So it's mainly confined to recurrence. As part of a uh, international consensus conference a few months ago, a number of experts got together and there was a consensus that there is no standard sequencing of agents for recurrent low-grade serous carcinoma. We have a quite a myriad of options for treatment, including several chemotherapy options, endocrine therapy options, bevacizumab uh, alone or in combination with chemotherapy and uh, the MEK inhibitors, and sometimes the BRAF inhibitors like Deprafenib. But as far as the sequencing, there's no standardization. So it's really a matter of considering the, the past history of the patient in terms of what treatment they've received and the risk-benefit ratio in terms of side effects of the treatment. For instance, most patients as part of their primary therapy now with invasive low-grade serous carcinoma will receive an endocrine therapy and usually letrozole as part of adjuvant treatment. Still, we still see patients that have not received letrozole. So generally, I would prefer to use letrozole in the recurrent setting before I go to trametinib just because of the side effect profile. But again, that will vary a lot.
1: Great, and Dr. Gershenson, just as a follow-up question, with um, the data from GOG 281, what kind of response can you expect to see, I guess, when you compare it to single agent chemotherapy?
2: So single-agent chemotherapy in the MILO study had about a 15% response rate. and GOG-281, it was actually less, more, more like 6%, although letrozole had about a 14% response rate. Tremetinib in the GOG-281 trial had a 26% response rate, so considerably higher, but also associated with you know, some significant adverse events.
1: Dr. Porter, can you talk a little bit about if you consider any mutational status you're recommending this therapy for patients?
3: A great question because I think it reflects that what we have learned about low grade serous ovarian cancers and being really a very distinct disease from the more common high grade serous ovarian cancers, both in pathologic diagnosis and as far as their molecular features. And we know that while the high grade serous ovarian cancers nearly universally have P53 mutations, These P53 mutations are pretty uncommon in low-grade serous, and more often we see alterations in the MAP kinase pathway there are KRAS mutations in roughly 20 to 50%, NRAS mutations in 15 or so percent, and then for five to 10%, and then VRAS mutations in another 10 or 15%. And so thinking about that, you know, one of the questions is, should this predict sensitivity to MEK inhibitors? And I think at this point, we can't conclusively say that in the GOG 281 study, patients were included regardless of whether or not they had a mutation, and i believe there was about 50% of patients in the study where the mutational status was looked at and determined and within those 50% of patients the it was not found that the presence of a mutation was predictive of um, benefit in terms of the median progression-free survival. There was an increase in the response rate in patients that did have one of those mutations, but it wasn't statistically significant. So I think so far, this has been hypothesis-generating data and not data that we can conclusively say a patient should have this mutation um, in order to receive this therapy.
0: This is all wonderful information. In addition to a patient having recurrent low-grade serous ovarian carcinoma and thinking about the prior treatment, what other considerations do we need to think about in our patient selection? I think we can
3: look at the most common adverse effects associated with uh, patients that are receiving trametinib therapy in order to think about who you know we may have to have some caution with. And in general, the most common things that are seen are rash, diarrhea, which can be quite significant fatigue, and peripheral edema. In the GOG 281 study, the most common three or four adverse events were, again, rash, anemia, hypertension, um, diarrhea, nausea, and fatigue. One of the things that has also come out in the literature in terms of other experiences with trametinib and other diseases is also a potential effect um, in terms of the cardiovascular system. So the development of cardiomyopathy, or a decrease in systolic heart function and that was seen in 8% of patients in GOG 281 and so i think that that's something that is to be considered if patients have baseline cardiac dysfunction that should be something that should be considered
2: yeah and i would just add you know another uh, aspect is their ability to take in oral feedings how well do they tolerate oral medications So for instance, you know, a number of patients may have an ileostomy and they may have a rapid transit time. And I think that has to be taken into consideration. It's not an absolute contraindication to trametinib or other oral medications, but I believe it does need to be considered when uh, prescribing an oral medication like trametinib.
1: Those are all great points. Before we kind of wrap up this preparing to give Tremetinib section. Dr. Davis, I was just curious when a prescriber comes to you and asks you to use Tremetinib for a patient, what kind of things do you recommend that they get as far as baseline and any things they can do in their notes or to help you get this approved for a patient?
4: So in terms of monitoring um, at baseline, we really should be doing standard CBC and CMP to monitor for liver function because this medication can affect the liver. In addition to blood work, because of the cardiotoxicity that was previously mentioned, we really should be assessing ejection fraction at baseline. And that for trametinib specifically needs to be at baseline one month after starting and then every two to three months while on treatment. Additionally, one thing we'll talk about is ocular toxicities. So these patients really should be having some sort of baseline ophthalmologic exam and really kind of having access to an ophthalmologist in case something does come up when they are on treatment. So those are really kind of the biggest things. And Another really good thing that was brought up was in terms of being able to take in orally thinking about adherence. So one thing we talk about a lot with oral cancer medications is adherence and being able to adhere
0: to taking something at home
4: every day. So there's a lot of different factors that we'll talk about that plays into that as well.
0: That's so great to consider. Whenever we're trying to get trametinib for our patients, is there anything we need to make sure and submit to insurance companies or any other payers in order to get pre-approval and expedite the initiation once we've selected a patient?
2: I'll leave this mainly to the pharmacist, but one thing to, to uh, underscore is the fact that Tremetinib is not FDA approved for low-grade serous ovarian cancer. However, it is on the NCCN guidelines. So I have found that most of our patients have no problem ultimately with authorization to take Tremetinib, but there are a few exceptions. And I think it may vary a little bit from one state to another based on the overseers, but that's an important point to mention.
1: I think that's a great point, Dr. Gershenson. And I know in South Carolina, we've seen that a lot, um, that it's pretty easy to get approval for it given the NCCN designation. So I think we'll wrap up this section of just highlighting um, the use of trimetinib for low grade serous ovarian cancer in the recurrent setting, knowing that sequence or order of things is not really well described at this point. And I think, you know, taking into account each patient becomes really important. Uh, While mutational status might be good to know, it's not something that is required for usage. And then just making sure to get good baseline cardiac function, ocular examination, and labs before starting this therapy. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and we hope you tune in for part two of Tremetinib Administration Considerations.
0: The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO on the go podcasts, please email
1: us directly at education at sgo.org.